Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Tracy Bannon for another So What episode. Hey, Trace. Hola. So today we welcome Alan Friedman. He's the senior advisor and strategist at CISA. And Alan has more than 15 years of experience in international cybersecurity and technology policy and is the co-author of the popular text, Cybersecurity and Cyber War, What Everyone Needs to Know, which is a book that I actually bought when it first came out, um, like 2014. Is that right, Alan? Is that the right year? And yeah. and I was flipping through it again just before our pod, before we started recording. And I was like, man, it's all this same, but we'll we'll get to that maybe later in the episode. But so Alan coordinates CISA efforts around the development of software bill of materials, otherwise known as SBOMs. I really do like that word. Um, and we're excited to get Alan's insights on SBOMs as well as CISA's plans for new secure by design guidance and what these mean for both the private sector and federal agencies. Welcome to Tech Transforms, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it is great to have you. Like I said, I've been a fan for a while. Um, and so in the introduction, we we started talking about S-bombs and how they're growing in prevalence. And I feel like they're probably something that has been a big part of your world and yours to trace for a long time. But for us on the other side of things, they seem to be exploding recently. <laughs> That's a bad pun, but it's true. Like I'm seeing, I'm seeing mentions of S bomb everywhere, um, especially since the cybersecurity executive order included them in there. So, Alan, as a person that coordinates the global cross sector community efforts and S bomb materials at CISA, first, will you please briefly explain what an S bomb is and why they were included in the EO? Sure. So uh, first, uh, great to be here. Uh, big fan of uh, both of your respective work uh, and and love the pod. So the uh, idea of an S-bomb uh, is, is actually kind of obvious, which is we should know what's in the software that we make, that we buy, and that we run. Uh, in fact, when I explain this to people who are maybe tech execs, but not at all in the security space. But then we just, wait, we, we don't already we don't? have this? That was my response. I'm like, what do you mean we have to mandate this? <laughs> it's, it, it kind of is bananas. Um, so I keep on my desk a Twinkie. Uh, it's, it's, it's a delightful metaphor because, uh, you know, it's, it, everyone always chuckles about the Twinkies. But, you know, this comes with a list of ingredients. And it's kind of crazy that we expect more transparency from a non-biodegradable snack than we do uh, from the software that runs our organizations, our critical infrastructure, our national security systems. Uh, and so the, the model here is to try to make this a reality. Uh, isn't a new idea. People have been talking about it for almost two decades now. 
Um, a lot of it started in the open source world, uh, right? There are many different open source licenses. And if you're an organization, you need to track which open source licenses are you using both in your open source and your proprietary code because there are strong rules for some of them. So it started from that. Also uh, grew out of some security efforts in, in OWASP and in movements like I'm the Cavalry. But we had never really uh, made progress on a shared vision because that's one of the risks is if you start to say he will be the national security solution to transparency and this will be the healthcare sector, uh, you're going to have a bad time because we all use the same software. And so the first, uh, the first task was to come up with this shared vision. Uh, and we have that today. And so now it's uh, both understanding what the gaps are, as well as making sure that we're promoting it in the right communities in the right places. And so one of the real boosts it got was in the White House uh, in 2021 uh, issued their executive order improving the nation's cybersecurity. For those of you who like number strings, it's Executive Order 14028. Uh, it's a long executive order, uh, about 30 pages if you print it out. But one of the sections is basically about software security and software supply chain. And it says you got to be this high to, be, uh, to, to sell to the government. What are the levers the government has to improve the overall quality of software? Well, we can't, we can't tell the entire world this is a software security requirement, but we can say to be bought by the U.S. government. And as you both know, the U.S. government buys a lot of stuff. <laughs> and so uh, that really was the task. Most of those requirements were pretty basic, um, things that we would really hope were already in place, which is things like have a separate dev environment from build environment. And yeah, gosh. Uh, are you using MFA in your environments? Things like that. Um, SBOM was really the newer piece. So that got a disproportionate amount of attention because it has forced organizations who don't have this visibility to think about how they're going to understand their supply chain. Yep. It's, it, it shocked me when I realized how prevalent lack, I, I still go back and call it dependency management from a thousand years ago. How is it that we could not know the very things? Uh, and so part of it has been, to your point, Alan, that proliferation of software, the proliferation of, of libraries. It used to be, it was a lot more difficult 15 years ago to bring down a library to get it into your organization to be able to leverage it from an open source perspective or even a paid source perspective. It's a lot easier now. And it's a lot easier for a dev to do an NPM, right? To do a to do a poetry, to do some kind of pull to bring down packages. And the sheer proliferation. Um, becomes very scary. To your point, it becomes very scary just to understand even what's on a developer's workstation, uh, let alone your entire value chain, the entire um, stream that goes across. Um, with the SBOM and with the, with the mandates and with some of the subtle um, changes that are taking place right now around attestations, do you see SBOM losing any of its momentum now that there's an self-attestation play at play? Mm -hmm. no, sorry, wait, what do you mean by self-attestation? Are you talking about like AI 
generating stuff? What do you mean? No, no, easier than that. If I don't have, there's a lot of crunchiness. It's still, there's still arguments going on, conversations going on. I'm sure, Alan, I'm hoping to ask you some questions on this. S-bombs are mandated, but not necessarily mandated for everybody. And there are still situations where companies, organizations, vendors are saying not yet. Uh, And so there's an out. The out is to kind of sign and say, we attest that we have everything taken care of. So it's a, it's a Uh. bandaid of sorts. And I'd love to, you know, so you're trusting as opposed to seeing. So you're just signing Uh, that waiver too and saying, sure, we trust you. And if we die our fault. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't (laughs) phrase it that way. I'd rather hear Alan (laughs) phrasing on it. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I want to definitely sort of walk through the complexities mm-hmm. of the U.S. government requirements because uh, I know a lot of your listeners are interested in this, and it's complicated enough for us on the inside of the government. But before we do, um, I want to talk about another aspect of sort of losing the special momentum of this, mm-hmm. uh, which is the software world is so diverse that for some corners of the software world, S-bombs are already boring. And that's where I want to get for everything, which is to say, this is just a natural part of my build process. I have a modern CICD pipeline. It's built into all my container tools. And so why is everyone talking about SBOM? Let's move on and talk about all the other cool stuff uh, and the other types of things that uh, my attestation, my, sorry, excuse me, my build process can securely generate as I build software. So where where I want us to get is to have everyone say S-bomb is yesterday's news because we're all doing it. Honestly, and I know a I lot of folks of, are. Like 10 years ago, I worked for a big system integrator. Our product was Insider Threat. And I mean, we did this. We had to. Like right down to where the code was was developed. Like it had to be developed in certain areas, couldn't be developed in other areas, I think that um, known as the access of evil back in the day. Like, so we had to do this a long time ago, which is part of why it was such a surprise to me that this isn't already boring and just a thing. And and that gets to Tracy's question about if this is going to be a compliance issue, not just why, you know, just, of course you have to do it. It's part of a good practice. What is the compliance model? And so let's walk through that timeline because it, it is a little confusing. So the first step was the White House issues executive order. This was in April of 2021. And it said, this is what you're going to do. And everyone who sells the U.S. government is going to have to do it. Uh, there was some conversation about um, uh, different types of software. But essentially, at the end of the day, it is ultimately going to be all software. Uh couple things happened from there. One is there was a definition of what is an S-bomb. So that was the first thing the White House said was, okay, you have to have an S-bomb. Wait, what's an S-bomb? So the U.S. government is going to define this. Uh, candid, so uh, candidly, this was a really interesting process. Uh, a little behind-the-scenes negotiation in government is uh, to the White House, great. We think this is a great step. Uh, it'll take us six months to do that. And then the White House comes back and says, great, thank you. You have 60 days. Uh, and of course, by the time it goes through all of the public feedback and uh, the clearance process, it meant 15 days. 
So that's always fun. So we've got an executive order. We've got a minimum definition. Uh, and then the next step for the broader executive order was for NIST to uh, in update their secure software development framework. Mm-hmm. Great document, great for helping organizations get oriented around having a secure software development model or an SSDL. Um, so that's wonderful. And it's a framework, which means it can accommodate a whole bunch of different types of organizations. The challenge there is turning the framework back into a compliance model. Uh, because again, at the end of the day, everyone wants to think about things, right? Understand your risk, but you still need to make that yes or no decision. Can we buy from you or can we not? Are you doing enough or are you not? And so the short-term goal is to say, we're going to have a set of self-attestations. Here's a form written in English, not machine-readable language, but plain English, or we'll say government English, because yeah. You know, yeah, even though we try, <laughs> uh, uh, that says, I, I attest that I've done these things. You know, I have MFA, I'm using scanning tools for static analysis, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, one of the other things that uh, OMB did, the one part of the White House said is, hey, for this first wave of adoption, agencies may ask for an SBOM, but they don't have to. Uh, but that still means everyone who wants to sell to a government agency needs to be prepared. And so I don't think it has really, um, and this is getting back to Tracy's question from a long time ago now, uh, has that really affected how organizations are prepared? I don't think it has. Um, I think both the software providers and a lot of the startups and open source projects that are working with them uh, still feel like this is something they need to get done. Um, Could we have been better at telegraphing concrete deadlines? Probably, but this is something that everyone sort of sees is going to come. And we're starting to see it in contract language already. So the Department of State issued uh, a a contract that said, hey, you got to have an SBOM, even for things like cars. Uh, And, you know, hey, why does the Department of State care about that sort of thing? Well, uh, right when the UN General Assembly is in New York, it's the United States government that's ferrying around very, very important people. We need to make sure those cars are secure. And so, right, we, we do a lot of things. Um, so we, we are starting to see uh, integration into this. And, and something that I really like is we're starting to see this more and more in private contracts, right? Government contracts is a huge sector, but it is dwarfed by the fact that most software is made and sold by the private sector for the private sector. So for the most part, have you seen a positive reaction to this mandate? I've witnessed some pushback, and I can say that the arguments have some sense to them. So they're not things that you can easily just dismiss. There are concerns by some corporations, some companies, some suppliers that say, I I don't want to reveal my special sauce. Okay, so I don't want to reveal because it's Hmm. really, I've taken open source 
a library or open source project X, and I've added a thin veneer, which is a value, but it's a thin veneer. So am I going to lose uh, some of my business? Am I going to be exposed in some way? So there's an interesting um, conversation that has to happen there. The second pushback that I heard, is that, uh, and I also found it curious. Is that first mm-hmm. pushback legit? Like, does it really reveal the keys to the kingdom to have an S-bomb? So, it so, doesn't give you the algorithm. So go ahead. Go so, ahead, Alan. So there, we have a couple of responses to that. Um, one is no one cares that using Libsy, right? Uh, for large projects, the vast majority of what's in your S-bomb does not happen. Two, S-bombs don't have to be public, uh, which means you can share them directly with your customer. Mm-hmm. And then three, something that we've built in to uh, our public understanding of S-bomb uh, is the idea of known unknowns. Um, and this is not just because of concerns about trade secrets, but also the tooling that we're using mm-hmm. may not be perfect yet. And so the acknowledgement that here's what I'm telling you, and there is incompleteness at this chunk of your dependency tree. Um, and tell your customer that. And then they can say, that's fine. We just want some basics. Or they can say, tell us more. Or they can throw a third-party analysis tool at it. Um, mm-hmm. th- or they can negotiate a contract that says, you have a heightened sense of responsibility for everything that's in your supply chain that you don't tell us about. There are lots of solutions here. Um, the importance is that we're building around this and for this. So your first gonna, is to trace, like, go ahead, Carolyn. not yeah. as big of a deal as people are trying to make it out to be. Like, there's... Um, I, I think that there's, there's some merit, but it hinges on the second thing that Alan okay. said. And that is... I should be able to share it with you. If I'm selling to Carolyn Ford Industries, I'm giving Carolyn Ford Industries this software that you've purchased or that you have licensed and the SBOM. I'm making an assumption. And this is the second issue that I've encountered is that there is a lack of confidence that who I am giving my SBOM to, that they can properly secure it. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you my, my SBOM, Carolyn, but... I'm not sure that your own practices are secure enough to keep my S-bomb secure. So while I agree with Alan wholeheartedly that I should be able to keep it private, so it only goes to my consumers, there is some trepidation, and the world is filled with breaches right now. Every day, another breach that we're all, you know, (laughs) listening to and reacting to and maybe getting desensitized to. That was the second pushback. I'll give it to you, but can you secure it? Can you? Promise me, right? And so we're, we're talking about a lot of handshakes, a lot of trust, a lot of verification that has to go on here. We have to build a lot of trust in a situation where we haven't always had as much trust as we've had and in the past. Is the securing it problematic because it's not just a, what I buy it, I look at it, everything looks good, now I can put it away in a vault. It's I have to share it with my developers so the developers can make sure this piece of code's not allergic to something in there. Is that Broader? Broader, I could breach. What if I decided that I don't like Carolyn Ford Industries and I'm going to breach Carolyn Ford Industries and mm-hmm. go after your secret sauce, which is based on some other secret sauce? It is a bit contrived. They're just arguments that are out there that we hear verbalized in the public conversation. So, so I often hear this as the 
um, is my S-bomb going to uh, give a roadmap to an attack or how to attack my product? And I, I think as we think about this, we should say, you know what? It's 2023. We don't just talk about hackers. We threat model, right? And at one end of my risk model, I've got a sophisticated adversary, someone who wants to reverse engineer my product, a nation state that's trying to attack critical infrastructure. And guess what? They don't need an S-bomb, uh, right? Jidra is free. Anyone with a you know master's in software engineering can write a pretty basic binary analysis tool. Uh, so from that perspective, there isn't a risk there. The other end of the spectrum, we've got automated malware, right? Spray and pray, skiddies, ransomware, all this stuff. Uh, and they're not using an SBOM either. They're using automated tools looking for vulnerabilities. And you know who needs the roadmap there is the defender, right? Where is this on my network? We talk about the uh, list of ingredients reference. Uh, I, I stole this analogy from uh, uh, Josh Corman. Instead of may contain nuts, you need may contain struts. Uh, where is this going to be on my network? Is there some risk space in the middle? Fully willing to acknowledge that there might be, but we sort of want a better conversation about that. So, Carolyn, to, to your initial question, what's the pushback? The thing that tickles me is, right, there's the D.C. lobbyist pushback, which is change bad. Um, <laughs> and one, we often see it coming from trade associations that are funded by companies that are already pushing out S-bombs. So it's, right, you, they just don't want regulation. I get it. That's their job. The job of the D.C. office is to push back against regulation, even though the company is already doing this. Um, and where we're, you know, it got to a point recently that the Atlantic Council uh, had to write a uh, five or ten page essay documenting some of the lobbyist complaints and how silly they were. And what I love is to combine my two great things that I'm a huge fan of, SBOM and Taylor Swift. It was a Taylor Swift-themed uh, essay uh, that just sort of basically said, you know, people who are working on SBOM should just shake it off. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. Are they a big lift to create? Is, and is it something that AI can do? And if AI gets involved, like, now, does that open up a new vulnerability? That was a whole string of questions. Uh-huh. Uh, no, these are these are these are exactly the sort of questions we should be asking, not just from computer security perspective, but also from public policy perspective. Um, and part of the challenge is what we're trying to do is change how literally all software on the planet is made and sold. Uh, so there's incredible diversity there. At the modern end of software engineering, you know, the type of things that you and Tracy have been talking about for years, this should be pretty easy, right? If you're using a modern tool chain, if you're using modern languages, if the your sources are built on package managers, if you're not doing a ton of backporting, this is pretty straightforward. Not only are there tools out there, but they're open source tools, they're free tools. Um, and it should be something that, you know, you have a new build, you have a new SBOT. 
the same way that building software for those organizations isn't a big deal, it was true for Spot. Um, that is not true for everyone. And interestingly enough, this is one of the few areas in security which actually puts smaller and newer companies at an advantage, not a disadvantage, um, because those smaller and newer organizations are likely to have this. Take a moment to feel sorry for your giant defense contractor or your global manufacturer who has 20 different divisions, each of which has different tools, each of which has different ways of storing data, and they need to track this across all the organizations. Now, the head of product security for one of the world's largest industrial control system manufacturers has said, if we had this, we had SBOM across our products today, it would save us thousands of hours a year because whenever the next log4j comes out, if you have a centralized, machine-readable, scannable system, it's not that hard. Um, if you have to go to each business unit and each business unit has to do things manually, then you're talking about real cost. So if you're thinking about implementation cost in a properly engineered world, it's a one-time cost to build this capacity, whereas the cost of not having it is an infinite budget item. And one thing I'll say is I've talked to some organizations who, when they are told it is a regulatory compliance, say, this is amazing. Now I have an excuse to get budget to re-engineer my processes. And that's perhaps one of the things that I'm, I'm most excited about. We're always very careful about pushing a regulation. But if someone can use the compliance budget to do the thing that they've always wanted to do for better engineering, that's win-win. Mm -hmm. I want to add a little piece here that to expand this, it's not limited, Carolyn, to defense, to our big dip, right, or defense industrial base in these massive organizations. Um, it is part of a fintech. It is part of uh, our healthcare and our insurance providers, our massive organizations, because they have decades of technology. So if you have anything that's brownfield, I use the term brownfield, meaning it already existed could only be a year old. It doesn't mean it had to be 30 years old or 50 years old, but anything that's already pre-existing, you're talking about rejiggering. You're talking about reapplying things to a process that may not be broken, but might not be the most effective. So we are talking about driving everyone towards improvement, driving everyone towards that improvement. There's a cost and it, it's okay that there's a cost, but it just has to be acknowledged. And to Alan's point, to your point, now we can take it out of a different budget uh, and a budget that people are less likely, right, to, to cut out the way that we used to say, well, we're not going to do that additional round of automated testing. No, I've got this testing team. Therefore, we're not going to spend the money. We're going to cut that from this budget and no longer do the automated testing. Uh, instead, we're just going to have those manual testers who've been doing it in the past. We are not going to have a leg to stand on to say, I'm not going to do that. So for the brownfield stuff, can't we? Just plug in a cyborg and tell it to scan it and tell us everything that's in it. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there is a whole uh, industry that has grown up in the binary analysis tool, especially for embedded systems where there's a lot of legacy code. Um, and they are definitely using uh, various shades of AI and ML. They've been doing it for a long time. It's not, it's not all the magic, you know. Does a chatbot solve this problem? The chatbot won't solve this problem, but having 
uh, everything just as simple as, as fuzzy matching, right? I've got a snippet of these this machine code. How do I figure out what this can map to from my giant library of legacy C code? That's where you sort of start to see this of uh, doing some uh, intelligent matching and intelligent prediction. So let me take you on just a, a quick little side tangent for just a moment. And Carolyn will probably reel me back in. <laughs> I live in a world of X bombs. So we are now applying them. Yes, AI bombs. That's fine. Uh, and, but we're also applying them to data and part of conversations that are happening with the, with the Department of Defense around specifically around the Army, around data bombs, which, Alan, are really data cards from quite a few years ago. But they're all software is software. Algorithms are software. Data only exists because there is software in the mix from that perspective. I'd like to get your quick thoughts on how this SBOM concept and construct is starting to be applied in a lot of other areas. Do you see that bifurcation maybe slowing things down. I'm I'm looking for how do we keep things going at speed right. because we're in a good direction if we don't get crazy. Thanks. So one, it's always flattering to become uh, the Uber of whatever, right? Once your analogy is taken off that everyone wants to copy it, that's a good sign, right? It means you've won the market share. Uh, the X-Bomb model uh, and is something that we're kind of excited about. It's the idea that, okay, I have software bill of materials, but I want hardware. I want AI. I want all these other things. Um, and and by the way, this is starting to be implemented in both Cyclone DX and SPDX as the two dominant data formats. Uh, there are two challenges. One is how do we maintain a modular architecture so we can tweak one as it advances without tweaking the other. And two is some of those other things are really hard. CISA uh, is releasing through our national risk management centers, uh, ICT, Supply Chain Risk Management Task Force. Uh, you want acronyms? That's NRMC's ICT Scrim TF. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got, we got that on the, on the whiteboard here. Um, some basic guidance on hardware build materials, and it's really a framework. Why? Because hardware is really hard, um, right? You can't take ash of a dim. Uh, how do you actually show that something is not counterfeit? How do you sh- how do you sh- determine that? Okay, someone way upstream of me didn't switch factories without telling me. Mm. Um, because that happens all the time, right? It's people ship in SKUs, not in. Uh, not mm-hmm. in very specifics. So not to say it's not a great idea. I think it is. It's something we need to get to for all kinds of risks and all kinds of quality and efficiency reasons. It's not just about security. Uh, but we also need to be comfortable with the fact that it'll be a couple of years before we get there. And so we want to make sure that we don't tie everything into one big immutable data structure that gets committed because, frankly, the U.S. government and uh, we work very closely with our friends in DOD, but uh, they in particular have a pretty bad reputation of building uh, the perfect thing. You know, I, I've tried to program in Ada. It's wonderful. Ada is a great language. They just spent, you know, 15 years trying to build it and no one ended up using it. 
Actually, you might find it funny, Ellen, that a, a group that I'm working with actually is dealing with a huge ADA code base, as well as 14 other languages that have been scabbed onto this incredible, and it's actually a very resilient, well-used uh, system, but I was floored uh, that there is that, that much uh, still, well, there are still developers that are working at, at that so. <laughs> So all this long talk and like, even you're bringing up these different languages, which I honestly is kind of going over my head a little bit, but um, it makes me think about this idea of secure by design. And it seems like, I know, Alan, you said it's not all about security and efficiency. It's also about efficiency, but it seems like these X bombs, all of them are necessary in order to be secure by design. They're a result of it, yes. not right. They, they, if I am building, designing something that is secure by default and by design and in depth, then these X bombs are a natural output from them. Mm-hmm. They're not, they're not the jumpstart, the cause of it. They're a nice manifestation. Tracy, that's really well said, right? It's it, SBOM is something that's cheap and easy to do if you have good processes, and it's a pain if you don't. So it's a very good signal of communicating that. And, you know, my PhD is actually on applied economics. And so, right, we talk about efficient signals, um, and that's one of the things you want. But the Secure by Design initiative uh, is, is a bigger piece. Uh, SBOM is definitely part of that. Uh, but this is something that has really been pushed uh, by CIS's director, Director Jen Easterly, uh, and uh, Bob Lord, who many of your audience will know, is is sort of uh, uh, he's the CISO CISO, right? He, he often does a lot of uh, you know direct the point, and and uh, the director has really starts with the um, you know the old seventies automotive uh, analogy that a lot of folks in security have used over the years, which is cars didn't used to be safe. And we just assumed that if there was an accident, well, that's just the cost of driving. And a similar approach is for modern IT products. We're just like, yeah, use IT products. You're going to have breaches. It just, it's a natural part of using software is just too complex to secure. Uh, and, and that doesn't make sense that, you know, we're still living with that model. And so trying to push and change this idea of how do we make it so that if I buy a product and I plug it in today and it's brand new, we know that security flaws are going to emerge. But how do we make sure that the things that we're plugging in today aren't insecure out of the box? And so there are a number of different pieces in that model of secure by design and default. SBOM's one of them. Uh, one of the things that I really like for sort of large pieces of software and large appliances, uh, the large tech appliances, is the idea of getting away from a hardening guide, right? So right now, if I buy major software, you can say, here's your software. And by the way, if you want to do it securely, you're going to have to do all these other things. It's like, would you like to buy this oven? And then would you like the eight additional steps so it won't blow up your house? Uh, so let's flip that equation, which is to say, here's the software. It's sold you in lockdown mode. Here's an interoperability guide. So that you need it to connect with this, great, right? Software, it, the point of software isn't to be secure. It's the do stuff. But let's sell the guides to uh, make it interoperable as needed 
and the rest of it stays locked down. And it also has some longer term pictures in Secure by Design. A bunch of people have noticed uh, recently that if you look through the list of all vulnerabilities out there, an embarrassing amount, conservatively half, are from memory issues. Uh, And some estimates are even 90%. What do you mean? That's a little high, but uh, that basically take advantage of the fact that if you can trick a computer to executing a part of memory that contains instructions that you, the attacker, have submitted, you can take over a system, right? So buffer overflows are the simple version, Mm -hmm. but there are thousands of variants, uh, some of which I think Tracy even discovered. So... Uh, and this is this is memory unsafe. It happens in memory unsafe languages, uh, C and C plus plus most notably. And so, setting up a long term vision of how do we make sure that we are using memory safe languages like Rust, mm-hmm. like Go, Rust. Uh, for our ecosystem. Now, this is a huge undertaking, right? rewriting a global code base of a huge chunk of software, not going to happen overnight, even for individual organizations, right? Uh, you know, the, the office manufacturers that we all know and love, a lot of their software is written in C. Are they going to rewrite their code base overnight? Absolutely not. So laying out that agenda of thinking critically, and this isn't just an engineering thing, and it's not just a policy thing, although incentives is going to be a huge piece of this, but it's also something that we're working with our colleagues at uh, the National Science Foundation and DARPA to explore how do we automate this? Um, And Carolyn, to anticipate your next question, um, AI automatic code rewriting is definitely not the Uh, (laughs) cure-all. Tracy is violently shaking her You know what? I know that just from using AI to try to write a paragraph of, you know, not, I don't want to say prose, but just, just to, just to write. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) Consider it's not there yet. And it will be incredible. And it's not there yet. And we've got a ways to go. And it's not there yet. Will it be helpful? It will be amazing, but we're not there yet. And I'm going to just keep foot stomping and foot stomping and foot stomping because folks are assuming because they have a, they've gone and they've used chat GPT and they've asked a couple questions and got something that sounded confident in well-formed English that in fact, it's great. No, it's, it's not there yet. If you know now, anything about your subject, oftentimes it's crap. And yes, you're like, that's, that's true. No different for code. No different for generation of code. No different for it understanding large contexts. There are some fantastic ways that we can use it, but I don't want to take Alan down that rat hole because that will be another fantastic well, I, hour I, plus. I, well, I do, and and by the way, we have some great AI folks here at CISA, and I do want to plug a blog post recently written by Christine Lai and uh, John O'Spring, uh, my two colleagues here at CISA. It's a secu- software must be secure by design, and AI is no exception. AI is software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the same things. And by the way, that also means we need transparency. We need model cards. We need data cards. And we need to improve both of those ideas uh, so that they're machine readable. Uh, because right now they're both great solutions, but they're really not built for automation. It's funny that you mentioned that because I literally reported on that on Friday morning for a, a little snippet that I do called 505. And we do about two minutes on it. 
Uh, and we were talking about the point of view that uh, AI is just software. And so all of this goodness needs to be applied. I, I will put a, my own pitch out here. I'm an architect. I'm a software engineer. So it has been driving me batty, driving me crazy at all of the attention that we're placing to after the software is built. We're attesting to these things. We're looking at after it's built. And so when the Secure by Design guidance came out uh, last year at RSA, uh, at the big uh, security, right? It's the, the paramount, the, the preeminent uh, cybersecurity uh, conference. I walked the floor and I saw essentially zero about architecture, zero about uh, Secure by Design. This year, CISA had a, a, a booth and I have my picture, I have my stolen stickers, um, secure by design. Uh, so from my vantage point, any way possible that we can help people to move things towards the origin, to be thinking about things from the very beginning is absolutely positive. And all of these downstreams are wonderful manifestations that help us to manage it and help us to audit it and help us to what, right, be watching these things when something happens. It's just easier Over. to do it right from the beginning, right? Like these are lessons I learned from my dad when I was a kid. You do it right from the beginning. It's a lot. It makes your life a lot easier in the end. But to, to Alan's point, not everybody knew what to do. Uh, yeah. And things have changed. And so we have to keep keep pace with that in large code bases without that kind of modularity, without that decoupling that we want that allows us to get after that piece and address that piece or address that package. Because we have these big, you know, we call them a ball of mud, right, or a monolith. That's a lot more difficult to do all the things that we're talking about, mm -hmm. all the things that Alan's bringing forward today. Yeah. So, Alan, time's beaten us, but what... Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? Like last piece of advice around S-bombs, X-bombs? Uh, so one, everyone should start asking their suppliers for an S-bomb, um, right? The, one, it's the old trait. The worst they can say is no. But if they can't give you an S-bomb, start asking why. Mm. Two, if you're in a software development organization, make sure that you start down this road. And some of it is pretty straightforward, right? There are automated tools in GitHub that will give you an S-bomb based on your source today. So, and again, if your organization can't do this or isn't willing to, start asking why, because that's a very important piece of that as well. Um, and then the other thing from a policy perspective and a technology perspective is there's a cliche that is always, uh, that is really true in this case, which is we're building the plane while we're flying it. And so if you're interested in this idea and want to help, sisa.gov uh, slash SBOM. We have, uh, and, or you can send us a note at SBOM at sisa.dhs.gov. Um, we have working groups that are busy trying to tackle some of the big questions here. Hey, how do I move this data around securely? Um, what does SBOM mean for software as a service? How do we promote adoption in my corner of the world? Uh, so we've got working groups and we want your help. We're designing this to not just be a couple of gubbies. Because frankly, I haven't touched prod in like 15 years. No one wants me designing things. But what we do want to do is make sure that we're capturing the perspectives of everyone from, you know, bleeding edge container developers to uh, legacy developers in things that are critical to health and safety, like automotive and 
uh, healthcare and industrial control. So if you're interested in engaging or you have opinions or you just want to tell us that we've got everything all wrong, um, that's what we're here for. So uh, SBOM at sisa.dhs.gov or sisa.gov slash SBOM. Um, we're, we, we'd love to engage with you. All right. So really fast, I want to get to the tech talk questions. So these are just fast, fun questions, totally off topic. Like the first one, since we're in Thanksgiving time frame, time period, do you have a favorite Thanksgiving dish or tradition? <laughs> uh, so I'm my family's cook. Uh, and like many of us, uh, I've got a very diverse family in terms of food requirements. So I always try to make a little of everything. Um, I have been deep frying the turkey because a lot of Thanksgiving stuff uh, comes in the oven. Um, and one of the things I'll tell you is I've learned why turkey frying is a Southern tradition is because if you have a Thanksgiving in New England, it's really cold outside to be standing <laughs> and watching a uh, standing and watching a, a um, thing. Also, if you like Thanksgiving cocktails, allspice dram is your friend. What is it? I do allspice allspice dram. Uh, it's dram? a allspice themed cocktail. It's really great for uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving cocktails. See, these are these might be my this might be my favorite part of the show just because I get really good tips. <laughs> so, Tracy, you want to ask the next tech talk, and then we'll let Alan go. Oh, sure. Uh, there are two of them, but I'm going to keep it to what is the piece of technology that you are personally most thankful for? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, you know, just without giving it any thought, I'm going to say just the fact that uh, AirPods can magically flow between devices. We're all on a lot of different devices these days. And, uh, you know, both my work and personal stuff are Apple ecosystem. And just having it seamlessly flow has been uh, a nice, efficient way to move things. I love that. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Alan. And I have to say before we close, so... You co-authored the book, Cybersecurity and Cyber War. I have to give a plug to our audience. This, So Alan wrote this with Peter Singer, also one of my favorite authors. It's very accessible. It still applies today. Um, and one of my favorite parts about it is you end the book uh, with what can we do? So you build it out, what the problem is, you know, and then you talk about the problems and some scary ones. And then you talk about how, you know, what we do. Super important book, accessible. It's actually kind of a fun read. So I had to give the book a plug. Um, and then thank our audience for joining, joining us on Tech Transforms. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 